Abdullah. Hello, Nuno. Hello, David. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful. And it's good to see you. Uh, very good to see you. And uh, condolences, Nuno. Uh, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Um, it was uh, a difficult week, but we, here we are. Thank you, David. Um, always uh, difficult to uh, lose uh, your old uh, army buddies. Um, especially when they're young and they get lost uh, because of accidents that sometimes happen. Either way, uh, everyone, thank you so much uh, for coming. Uh, we're going to start today with... Can you hear me well, David? Oh, we can hear you very well. Thank okay, you very much. You. And no, before you start, ahead. I'm going to tell everyone, everyone is being told they are not to give any news out until you arrive. <laughs> uh, I don't know why is that, but uh, we have a few uh, things to discuss today. Uh, we'll start with something that it's, I usually start this, uh, this show, David, as you well know, you're always here with... Um, broadly uh, a retrospect of the battlefield and i know that axel will be joining us uh, soon enough uh, for a bit but uh, today i think we should start with something uh, a little different we should start with uh, the issue of attackums well what's the issue with the attackums uh there's um, information or there's uh, a sense that the U.S. Uh, will eventually supply uh, Ukraine with attackers. I've said it here, but it's always good to, to remind everyone why attackers is so important for Ukraine and the importance uh, of the system. Uh, the attackers, the Army Tactical Missile, can be uh, it's used from the can be fired by HIMARS systems and the M two seventy multiple uh, rocket launcher, and these systems have about this. This is basically a short range ballistic missile with uh, about three hundred kilometers of stated. Uh, reach of stated range and this system comes in various uh, configurations and depending on its variant we have the old M39 and M39A1 variant which are basically cluster munitions there's not that many of these um, operational because they've been mostly updated to the M57 in the M57E1, which are uh, the unitary warheads uh, version of it, which means that the missile carries a single warhead, high explosive warhead. It's actually uh, the warhead is the same warhead as uh, the Harpoon missile, the Harpoon uh, naval missile. It's a 500-pound uh, penetrating warhead. And this uh, 
the M48 range from the M48 to the M371, especially uh, are all uh, GPS guided also beyond the ballistic guidance, uh, which means uh, they are very accurate missiles. They can be fired uh, from uh, systems that Ukraine already uses, and they can uh, they have a, a, a great range, and they're uh, difficult to intercept, in the sense that it's a short-range ballistic missile, that it's only uh, probably in the envelope. Uh, of interception of the high-end Russian systems, eventually, the S-400 and the S-500. Even if the S-300V may be able to intercept them. Uh, the missile takes a ballistic uh, arc towards its target, and then it basically, with GPS guidance, it um, assumes a position a uh, 90 degree angle to the target uh, from high altitude and it dives at max 3 to 5 depending on the altitude towards the target as anyone can see a tennis steel with 500 pounds of high explosive diving at the target at max 4 uh, it will at 4 times the speed of sound it will cause significant damage this isn't news for any of you, probably, because this discussion has been ongoing for quite some time. But it's now uh, very important for us to to uh, breathe new life into this discussion. And especially to explain why is it important and why it hasn't been supplied and to pressure those who are in the way of Ukraine receiving uh, these weapons. First of all, why is it important uh, when Ukraine has received already um, the Scalp missiles, both Storm Shadow and Scalp ER by uh, France and Britain, and those are missiles with the same range envelope, 300, um, 300 and something kilometers range, Missiles who are different because they're subsonic. They're harder to detect. Let's be be. Uh, let's make the proper comparison. The the Atakams missile being a ballistic missile is much easier to detect by the Russians. Uh, they'll detect it for sure. The Storm Shadow uh, or uh, scalp missile, which are exactly the same missile. Uh, it's basically two variants of the same missile. One French and one scalp is French and Storm Shadow is the British version of it. Is a cruise, a low observable uh, cruise missile, which is subsonic, which carries a smaller warhead, uh, the brooch warhead. Uh, it's a um, a two-step warhead that causes penetrates the target and then uh, destroys it. We inject the the high explosives in uh, the targets after creating a penetration point. To put it this way, it's much harder to intercept. 
because uh, the cross sections of the missile are very low observable. Uh, but it's a an air launched cruise missile. And here lies the rub. Being an air launched cruise missile that we know of has been adapted to the Su twenty four Su twenty four of the Ukrainian Air Force. The 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 thing is, when you use uh, an air launched cruise missile, it's the Ukrainian Air Force that needs to uh, get tasked with the mission, have the assets on the plane, and have it deployed. This obviously is something given, of course, the, the small amount or the, the limited amount, not, a, not small, but the limited amount of these weapons that Ukraine possesses and it were supplied, makes it um, this tasking, this whole tasking takes some time and uh, it's used to serve specific targets and targets with a specific military value has been used successfully, as we've seen all throughout the last few months, uh, in uh, hitting ammo depots, logistics depots, personnel uh, deep within the Russian rear. Basically, uh, everything that can be hit with these missiles in Ukrainian territory, that includes, of course, Crimea, can be hit with these missiles. But... But, and here is the issue, the kill chain or the, the time, the targeting process for these missiles makes it hard to use for time-sensitive targets. And what's time-sensitive target? Let's, um, let's uh, define that. Time-sensitive target is a target where you can, you need... Um, you have a small uh, uh, a window of opportunity to hit that target. Okay, let's say an S four hundred system, for instance, where uh, you have um, uh, a small window of opportunity to uh, basically hit uh, the target, right? Because it can move. Same with electronic warfare assets, same with high-value personnel that may be uh, on the move, and the same is with uh, time-sensitive targets that uh, are in the logistics chain, like trains, for instance, moving high-value uh, ordnance from one place uh, to the other of the region. It's much harder to to have a time sensitive target because for this simple um, issue I was explaining that the the Ukrainian air force needs to get planes in the air armed to deploy uh, the missiles. So this is a much more uh, time consuming process that goes through. Uh, the operational commanders to give to the Ukrainian Air Force and to the asset uh, squadrons then to get the the planes in the air with the air launch cruise missile. So there's a gap here 
which the attackers fills perfectly, which is giving operational commanders, operational level commanders, uh, brigade commanders, divisional commanders, the ability to react uh, with deep strike assets immediately from their own artillery batteries, from their own high Mars batteries and M270 batteries, to targets that are time-sensitive, that were detected um, by special operations forces, by drones, by reconnaissance elements, that can be hit almost with immediately or within a short amount of time by orders of divisional and operational-level commanders and brigade commanders using exactly ATACAMS uh, ballistic missiles. Now, this uh, shortening of the the chain, uh, the the shortening of the kill chain, is a much much uh, more important. Uh, it's very very important for um, military operations, and it enables. It also enables another thing beyond uh, shortening the time span in the time frame where you can hit targets in in, uh, uh, in the deep rear of the enemy or um, targets that are high value but time sensitive. It creates another important factor, which is if you throw at the high value target, let's say. Sevastopol Naval Base with some submarines anchored. You can launch attackums, you can launch air launch uh, air launch cruise missiles, and you can launch drones, and you can launch uh, aerial drones and uh, surface drones, and you have a multi-vector, multi-prong attack that will overwhelm any sophisticated defense. You have a subsonic, low-observable air-launch cruise missile heading at you. You have a ballistic heading at you, and you a ballistic missile heading at you, and you have drones with decoys heading at you. So any attack that uses this sort of complex, multi-vector, multi-prong uh, attack on a target will create uh, a much more uh, uh, radically uh, much more complex uh, defensive picture for the enemy. This is the importance of attackums. Starting the kill chain, making targeting process the fix the fine fix finish part of the process uh much much uh, much more robust uh much more time sensitive and enables more complex attacks on enemy high value infrastructure and high value targets now we all have seen uh, 
excuse me, uh, multiple reports uh, that eventually um, attackers will be supplied, will not be supplied. Well, basically, the U.S. has been dragging uh, its feet on attackers. Now, I frankly thought the administration was the issue for attackers, escalation fears, and uh, stocks. Now, let's address all these uh, issues in parts. First of all, there's effectively a, a, a limited number of attackers, a few thousand attackers in U.S. and uh, Western stocks. There's other nations in NATO that operate attackers, like Turkey, for instance, like Poland, like Romania. But the stock itself is not uh, very, very significant. It's a few thousand missiles. And, and uh, another point about the system itself, each HIMARS can carry two attackers, can launch two attackers, and each uh, M270 can launch, sorry, each HIMARS can launch one attackums and each M270 can launch two attackums because the system is much uh, bigger, much more, uh, much, much bigger than the typical uh, uh, Gimbler uh, missile. The issue with uh, attackums is that the first of all stocks regarding stocks there's stocks of course the us has a few thousand and those stocks are some prepositions some in the us war stocks of course but the us military does not have a replacement missile yet the precision strike missile the the prism is basically uh, it's basically the, um, the successor to Atakams. It's a much longer range missile, but uh, it's still in serial production testing, which means the system is operational. It's, it's not operational. The system has been tested, but the manufactured ones have been tested to get um, approval by the U.S. military. And now uh, the the production lines were set up, and the U.S. Needs, still needs to test the uh, serial production uh, parts, the serial production units of this missile. Now this may seem um, a bit uh, how can we put it, a bit complex and a bit. Uh, uh, too much bureaucracy in times of war, but the, the fact is that one thing is you build, let's say, 20 missile to test to, to to test the system and see if the system works as intended, and those are basically missiles that are, to an extent, uh, manufactured individually, right? And once those are approved, the system is highly effective and it works, 
Then you need to set up the production lines. You you bid the contract is is set up. You need to set up the production lines, and then you will need to test the serial production version because the serial production version may have other issues, and issues may arise in the past. It has a reason with other systems where it doesn't work for uh, because it has a, a a faulty part because it has. Uh, other other uh, manufacturer issue. This has happened. It's nothing extraordinary, and that's why you need to test. Uh, you need to conduct robust tests of the serial production phase. That's where we are with Prism. Prism is a much more sophisticated system, much lighter, much um, lighter, uh, bigger range, highly effective. Uh, the high Mars will be able to carry two. Uh, the M two seventy will be able to carry four. It's apparently in the seven hundred. Apparently, and I say apparently because part of it, it's from what we know uh, in terms of open source. It's within the seven hundred kilometer envelope in terms of range. But this missile is not yet in serial production, so. Any supply, any significant supply of attackums uh, will come at the, a hit to U.S. Uh, capabilities in U.S. posture. That's why. That's for sure. But no one is saying, and uh, this is my point, no one is saying supply a thousand attackums. Supply a few hundred. Supply a hundred. Supply two hundred. The other issue, uh, but this this stock issue has been one of the issues that uh, DOD analysts have been basically telling uh, Secretary Austin uh, to not authorize uh, the supply of attackers. Even if there's a political will by uh, the administration to supply the missiles. There's significant uh, uh, hindrance in uh, the DOD itself. The other issue is when you you look at the threats around the globe, and you can say, okay, but the U.S. may need attackers for an emerging conflict somewhere. Well, let's be frank. Conflict with China, attackums won't be as relevant as people think, because a conflict with China is on the far end of the logistics chain. It's uh, basically land. Uh, it's basically air and sea uh, conflict, depending obviously on the nature of the conflict. And where it starts and uh, how it uh, develops, let's put it this way. And it's not likely in the coming future because China is not going to invade Taiwan uh, within the next few years. But if it ever happens, it's still a conflict where I would say that the TACMs are not very relevant. Uh, it will be a conflict where uh, Tomahawk missiles and other sorts of missiles, air-launched cruise missiles, will be much more relevant 
than Attackums, which is a land-based short-range ballistic missile. The other uh, scenario where you could envision uh, such, a con- such a use is with Iran. But Iran is an air campaign, mostly. Nobody's going to invade Iran. Yes, you could hit a few targets within Iran with Attackums, but you can do that with... Uh, other weapon systems and uh, air launch systems. Now, in Asia, there's one scenario where attackums is really extremely relevant, which is the Korean Peninsula. The Korean Peninsula is where, for sure, uh, and if I had to bet, I would say it's where most of the stock for this uh, ordinance is. Are sorry, because for the simplest of uh, all reasons, which is, uh, it's the scenario where attackums is really relevant to strike at North Korean uh, bunkers in North Korean facilities buried deep uh, within uh, the mountains uh, uh, overlooking the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. That's where. Uh, it's uh, very relevant to have this system available. And the other is, of course, the European scenario, European command. The scenario under European command, where any land war with uh, Russia in Europe is, of course, when this missile has uh, significance. Well, guess what? There's a, a land war going on against Russia in Europe. So the assessment on uh, the hit to U.S. posture, I'm not convinced. Is Kim Jong-un uh, a wild card? Yes. Are the stocks able to be used in Europe and enough to be used in Europe, retain a, de- a degree of war stocks and be used in the Indo-Pacific? Sure. I'm not advocating for a thousand attackums to Ukraine. Uh, Let's get a few hundred in there, which is good enough for the purpose and for the the immediate future. And then the other uh, aspect is the traditional big department cover your uh, cover your ass management politics which is we take no risks because from risk, if we take a risk, we may be eventually at a given point in time faced with a situation where the risk we took back there comes back to haunt us. Well, two things. First of all, industry, uh, if you don't want to take sufficient risks, please have industry um, ramp up production and then the other is welcome to the world of war where risk taking is uh, necessary sometimes and some some more robust policy is necessary to uh, advance the objective which is to win and to win here is having Ukraine win. It's not having anyone win. Uh, It's having Ukraine win the war. 
all of this to say about Atacams because it's important that people realize that if we are uh, in information space uh, discussing this matter, why is it important? Why is it relevant for the scenario? Why we are almost there? And why, who are the forces blockading this? And it surely isn't the the administration or the National Security Council or uh, the president. It's uh, experts within the DOD uh, not being able to take a risk, not being able to uh, see that this is the way where... um, we need to go. There's uh, a risk that needs to be taken. There's uh, we need. There's some compromise of uh, capabilities that needs to happen, so this war can move to the next stage. And these analysts, of course, inform their principal, which is the Secretary of Defense and the other policymakers within the department. And as any good policymaker, I have no doubt that uh, um, Secretary Austin will hear his, his experts on this matter. I disagree profoundly. I think if there's a strategic gain here, it's to make Ukraine win the war. There's another risk that uh, some in, in government, in the DOD in particular, in other areas of government too, but the TOD in particular will always point to is escalation. Because uh, attackums may escalate and whatnot. Well, Ukrainians have been very disciplined with the use of storm shadow or scalp missiles, which have been very uh, uh, serious and they have not struck using those missiles in Russian territory. If I'm looking at it, would I allow them to strike Russian territory, especially within the vicinity of the theater, like Krasnodar with uh, storm shadows and scalps? Well, if I was the Portuguese government and I had those kinds of missile, which we don't, unfortunately, I would have no qualms with it because Russia can bitch, but they know that they can really do that much. The danger of escalation with the attack comes if the Ukrainians compromise themselves with the same discipline. I don't believe it's significant. There's always a risk of escalation. (laughs) Sure thing. We'll be talking further down the road about the Black Sea. And that's where I see escalation happening. The Russians just Use drones this week on a a, a Ukrainian uh, port 200 meters from Romania. If you sink some ships by accident somewhere in Romanian uh, territorial waters, there you go. You have escalation, right? If you mine waters and mines sink ships in Ukraine in Romanian territorial waters. There you have escalation. So the escalation potential of this is always happening. The regime in Moscow is unstable. 
it's unstable. We've seen it. We have generals like Teplinsky, Surovikin, Popov, who've been arrested or dismissed. We have uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man with balls of steel, um, literally uh, going about uh, because he's needed for uh, African operations. We'll talk about that too in the coming uh, in this show. But I wanted very clearly to state this thing about the TACOMs. Why is it important? What's the difference? Why is it relevant? And where can we, as an information uh, operation, let's put it this way, uh, target our, uh, the policymakers in Europe, and especially the policymakers in the US, and say to the, the DOD, please enable the government, the U.S. administration to uh, supply these weapons. I think that's where we had to start today, uh, David. I don't know if people have any questions. I don't see any hand hands up. I think I've or I've been either very boring. You're ne- never uh, boring, you know. There, there's the thing, right? You're just very, very insightful. I was going to say, uh, do, do you want to explain the kill chain to some people? Some people understand it's anything that's uh, involved in that order, but there's there's some um, uh, some specifics uh, along the lines of. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, why don't I just start it, and then you you could you could you could go through the other bits. So there's little bits go, go. that people. Yeah, there's a little bits that people uh, will be interested in, right? So not every uh, every uh, uh, system that can fire an Atacams will have an Atacams with it. So when you, uh, when say for instance you found a target, let's just say it's a, as Nuno says, a high value target, some generals in a house somewhere in range, right? And out of range of any of the other things they've got. So you, first off, you've got a point where you have to find. Uh, do you actually have even anything that is within that range that can target it, right? And if they do, yes, that's great. Do they have then a Atacams uh, uh, missile with them, right? Because they probably won't. How far is that the, the that missile to it? How long will it take to load, right? And there are many, many options, bit, little bits of failure that go along in that chain. So that's when... To, uh, um, you know, he's talking about the kill chain, right? And it goes up to the person who's relaying, say, yes, you can use, because I'm presuming with uh, Asakams, there will be a point where someone still has to uh, sign off on on that. And uh, any any delay within that process is something that could, um, could interfere with what you've got. And uh, not least the five or seven minute time frame for it to get that distance. That's that's important and that's very relevant. How let's uh, do this by uh, using uh, an example. I think it's easier to explain. Let's say uh, a Ukrainian uh, soft unit or a rec- reconnaissance element is operating behind uh, the front, behind the for the the front line of enemy troops, and it's let's say. 100 kilometers uh, doing uh, area reconnaissance, which is basically you have a specific area and you recon that area for uh, 
the command of a brigade, for instance, for a brigade command. And they're running reconnaissance and they detect uh, an S-400 uh, system in the area. Well, you detect an S-400 system in the area. That's a very high value target. You don't know the system is there because the system remains idle. And let's say the system is 120 kilometers outside from the... 150 kilometers from the artillery uh, range of of, uh, of uh, Ukrainian assets. They'll relay the proper coordinates. They'll relay uh, the information. And then what happens is the brigade will have to decide, okay, this system is there, but it's ready to move, for instance. They can relay, okay, the system is here, but it's going to move soon because they're basically packing it up. What happens here? How do we strike it? Okay, in the current form, it's 150 kilometers from our artillery asset, so we don't have, there's no uh, artillery asset that can reach it. There's, uh, that we know of, no ground launch small diameter bombs in theater, so that's out of the equation. So how will you use it? How will the, the Ukrainians uh, hit it? With the current um, configuration, they'll have to relay it to the higher echelon, to being at Kiev. And Kiev will have to task uh, the Ukrainian Air Force mm-hmm. uh, getting a plane in the air with Storm Shadow from another place in Ukraine that uh, plane will have to travel to a launch box. Let's say that the, the plane, this all takes two hours, which is being very optimistic. But let's say it takes three hours. It's still optimistic. And by the time that plane gets into the kill box, uh, into the launch box, uh, where it can launch its cruise missiles at the target, it's, uh, the target has gone. The difference with the TACOMs is, of course, every battery won't have an TACOMs, but they'll be at brigade level under the command of the brigade commander or the divisional commander, uh, uh, an MLRS unit with TACOMs. What this does, what the the use of TACOMs does, is say the brigade commander can say, okay, this is a high priority target in our target set. So what we are going to do with it is uh, what do we have that can hit it right now? It's X units with attackums. You'll approve it. The, the brigade commander or uh, the senior commander of, of the, the brigades or the divisional staff will approve it. And they'll task that unit to launch against the system. Now, this can take, this shortens the time considerably, and it shortens it to an hour, let's say, at at best. And that unit can launch at it really fast. And within an hour, you can hit the target. 
because in four hours it can be gone, but within an hour it may be, still be there. So before launching, uh, they'll confirm with the forces on the ground if t- the target remains in the coordinates that it was given. If it remains, they'll give the fire order. If within a few minutes, the target will be struck. This is the example of the difference that attackums makes, right? Let's say you have a train that uh, is stopped for some reason in a given place with a considerable echelon of the enemy on board. That's another target that you can hit deep with a significant uh, uh, with time sensitivity and uh, in an ideal world the brigade and the divisional command will have a target set list and they'll uh, run through it. And if it justifies the use of a, of a weapon, because there's, there's always in, um, in, a, in anything like this, there's always this issue of, is it a target worth using an ordinance that we have in short supply? If I see if you, Let's say we see 100 guys or 50 guys uh, in a, in a, doing uh, a bivouac somewhere deep within the room. Perhaps you're not going to use an attack to hit that. That's not a, a relevant target, right? That's not a high priority enough to use a, a, an ordinance that is scarce and there is limited in numbers, and who's who that your allies can supply just a few, uh, a few uh, small numbers of, or a few hundred. So that's the important part of this. Okay, you will need to to have a very clear uh, priority, uh, your priority target list very. Uh, that set and the weapons need to be with divisional or brigade commanders in the axis that Ukrainian command finds relevant and some of them will be uh, directly under the command of general staff in Kiev which um, obviously will be used to the stage what I, I said before of multi-vector attacks on very high uh, priority targets uh, like Sevastopol, a uh, naval base, or uh, uh, airfields, or high, very high priority, high priority targets that you need to hit and are uh, significantly defended. So, this is important. Okay, this is the the most relevant thing about the Texans. I I hope that the uh, the example is clear. Uh, Nick, please go ahead. I was uh, <clears throat> thinking about exactly the question of uh, where would, I mean, you with your knowledge of the situation, obviously you're not on the ground, um, and you said, okay, there's an S-400 and you would be prepared to use a, a Storm Shadow uh, to take out an S-400. Can you give us some examples of targets that you either would or wouldn't, with your knowledge of the situation, 
use um, an Attackums or a Storm Shadow, I don't know how they compare if they're roughly comparable, uh, where you would go, oh, yes, you know, we'll hit that with an Attackums versus now we'll kind of, you know, we've only got 50 or 100, we'll keep them back for the next time. So I guess if an S400 installation is worth taking out, perhaps an S300 isn't. Just just to give us an idea of the kind of premium premium targets um, that you're that you're talking about. Well, Nick, premium targets. Let's say at operational level, uh, if I'm command, if I'm let's say with a maneuver force, uh, and I have a few of them, uh, let's say I have um, uh, twenty or thirty uh, weapons. What targets will I will I use? Well, uh, helicopter bases. Because uh, Ukraine Heli- has... Helico- uh, sorry, heli- helicopter what? I didn't hear helicopter. Helicopter bases. bases. Okay. Helicopter bases or staging areas. Because uh, Ukraine will have... Is, is having helicopters have been uh, a problem. But uh, I would say uh, air defense systems, but the advanced ones like S-400s or S-300Vs. I would say eventually command posts at uh, brigade or higher level. Let's say we see a tactical operation center for a Russian brigade uh, deep within the rear uh, for uh, that we can hit with an attack. That's a good strike. And then... uh, uh, logistics, fuel, and ammo depots that are uh, supply the the fronts that are relevant, that are the main uh, that sit in the main supply routes, and are the key uh, elements uh, to to supply uh, forces in the front. That's another target I'd hit. Try to hit. Um, I'll try. Uh, can you hear me? Nick? We I can. Know. We can hear you. I, w- I, I lost you for a couple uh, of yes, seconds, I but you're fine. That's why I lost you. Uh, I would try to hit uh, targets that are. Uh, uh, this would be my list of, of high priority targets. If I get uh, a Russian commander, a divisional commander, something like that within range, yes. But that's in the command post uh, targeting. And then I would keep a lot of these weapons, uh, a significant number of these weapons, uh, for uh, operations uh, planned by the general staff at strategic level, uh, which would be uh, the airfields, uh, the deep sea ports, uh, the Russian Navy eventually, in ports. Uh, that kind of thing, and to stage m- multiple tar- multiple vector raids on uh, strategic targets. Okay, but because we have to differentiate here with the the, the, the operational use that um, operational commanders and div- being it brigade and divisional commanders can make use of, and. Uh, the strategic level operations that and are uh, war are relevant for the overall theater in the overall war 
that can be staged. Let's say if you want to hit Sevastopol and make it unusable, you'll probably need to stage a multi-vector attack. And one of the ways to do it is to, to do it with uh, Attackums, Storm Shadows, and all that. Uh, regarding the difference between both of them, uh, I would say that, uh, as I said before, one is a ballistic, uh, Mach 4 uh, 500-pound warhead missile, the Attackums, the other is a low observable uh, subsonic cruise missile, but but the combination of both the combination of both is a very very scary combination okay Nick? and i think that's that's the 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 target set and that's the the type of targets that i would uh, seek uh to hit uh in uh with attackers that and that's why they're important okay because we've seen, let's go back in the war, we've seen the impact that HIMARS had uh, in the war early on, when it was supplied. It forced the Russians to a series of adaptations that massively complicated their logistics. And war is logistics. Then, it's not only logistics, but it's a great deal of logistics. Then, uh, they had, they readapted, they dispersed their ammo depots, they made it, they uh, had to push them back out of range. And then we saw what happened now with storm with the Storm Shadow Scout missiles, which basically now they're within reach of the whole uh, theater, but uh, they had to push it they had to push the missile, they had to push their uh, ammo da- depots even deeper uh, into hardened facilities within the rear and those that weren't uh, those that weren't hit. So that, again, complicated logistics and we are now seeing uh, the result of those shaping activities with long-range fires in the south- southern front. And now if we add attackums to this, we are not only adding another asset, we are adding a different type of asset that enables you, in conjunction with air launch cruise missiles and drones, to launch uh, complex attacks on highly defended targets that will break through any defense of the target. Uh, you, you can... I have an example. There's an example. There's an example of this that Russia tried. When Russia tried to destroy uh, the, the, the battery, the, the Patriot battery, sorry, in Kyiv, they did exactly this, a multi-vector, uh, multi-pronged attack with on one hand, Shahid drones. On the other hand, uh, air launch uh, ballistic missiles, the Kinzolts. And on the other hand, cruise missiles. So it was a multi-vector, multi-pronged attack that was defeated in a, a, a tremendous display of capability. Uh, 
by the Patriot batteries and by other uh, air defense systems and the other point defense systems. But the matter is, and the 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 real the real thing is, they tried it right, uh, and it was defeated by Patriots. It was defeated by Gepards. It was defeated by other spread platforms, and it was defeated by another thing, which is software. It was defeated. That attack was defeated by the advanced battle management the integrated advanced battle management system that the U.S. supplied to Ukraine, the air defense uh, management system, which basically uh, makes this a fluid operation. Now, the Russians don't have any of this. Uh, and and even attackums is a, a whole, they'll detect a, an attackums launch 100%. It's a ballistic missile, they'll detect. They'll detect it. And like the Storm Shadow or the Scalp, which is low observable terrain grasping missile, which is very difficult to detect. They'll uh, have trouble tracking it. They won't have any trouble tracking the attackums. Can they intercept the attackums? Yes, the S400 probably can, the S300V probably can. But if you add in more complex scenarios, in the multi vector raid, if you add cruise missiles and drones and surface drones and all this in uh, a one uh, attack, it massively, massively complicates any uh, defense of uh, of a target. Okay, I think that's uh, what is more important here. The most important part of this. And I don't know if anyone has any other additional questions. No, no, thank you very much, Nuno. So, I'd say we need to talk about what's going on in the South, right? And what's going on around the field. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. So, we've seen Staromayorsk has fallen, apparently. At least Russian sources say Staromayorsk has fallen, and now we have some Ukrainian sources confirming that Staromayorsk has fallen. Staromayorsk is important okay it's uh we've said here a few times that it was one of the areas of the southern front that where we had uh, a, a significant push of uh ukraine with some forces committed and now we apparently have a degree of success with um with the city uh, having fallen to to Ukrainian uh, forces. Now, I would recommend everyone uh, that uh, as, that understand there's a lag, in, uh, and I've said it multiple times, uh, there's a lag in information uh, in these... Uh, in the information we have available. So there's between the information uh, uh, we have available and the, the, the ground. So that lag in information means that probably Staromayorsk was taken, uh, not today, but uh, a few hours, a few days, or even uh, a, a few uh, 
uh, a few days ago or probably the last 24 or 48 hours. So that's something people need to be uh, uh, totally aware of. There's a lag in, in, the, in the information. It's a relevant, uh, I wouldn't call it a breakthrough because it's uh, frankly not a breakthrough, but it's a relevant point in the theater. Uh, and the other, uh, and it's a relevant objective, because it now has, Ukrainian forces are now poised to secure that and strike south. Let's see how they want to exploit it. That's the thing here, how exploitation works, because eventually um, it may, or they may want to exploit it, or they may, they may want to secure it first and secure the flanks and then exploit it. Let's see how that uh, evolves. Uh, we've seen it um, here in uh, in this uh, in this area that it's uh, I think uh, a very it's very good news that Staromayorsk uh, has been seized by Ukraine, but but uh, significant. Uh, Defenses and uh, some some significant uh, Russian defenses remain, even even, and this is I think an important thing we need to 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 be aware of. That uh, it's a relevant relevant objective. Okay, I think um, people need to be. It's good news. Basically, it's. Excellent news that uh, Staromayorsk has been has been uh, seized, and there's going to be uh, some very interesting. The next uh, few days are going to be very very interesting. I particularly enjoy the fact that what uh, Russian commanders said was going to happen finally uh, is happening. Uh, the General Popov of the Russian staff said that, well, uh, when, once we lose this, uh, we're, we're in, on the verge of, of uh, an enemy breakthrough, basically, that's what he said. And we now see that Ukraine is, really has, um, a very uh, detailed um, plan for this. I would advise everyone to be uh, very careful uh, with information because it's still ongoing. It's still... Um, we don't have a full picture of it, but uh, this region of Staromayorsk is a very important uh uh, city because it commands the Makriol River and the road that leads south to Staromlinivka. Now, it means that uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian units ha have pushed have pushed towards the main defensive line of the Russian Federation. Okay? And that's where we uh, are now at this at this point in the in the in the war, the other 
military aspect I think it's interesting here is Robotnik. Now, I'm going to deflate Robotnik a bit. Because I've seen people say, well, it's the main effort, it's finally here, it's Robotnik. Well, in, in it going, and we are basically, uh, as we can see, we are in Robotony will be the main effort, and they've launched more units, and it's uh, ongoing. I'm, I'm not convinced that it's the main effort, okay? I'm really, really not convinced uh, it's uh, Robotony is the main effort. And, and... I'll say something else that I know a lot of people won't agree with me. But uh, the thing with uh, the units, they've committed more and more units. As far as I can see, they've committed another brigade. Okay. So it's not exactly a main effort yet. Uh, we are seeing basically Ukraine committing to this region, another brigade. And there were some forces rotated out. So the movement and the, the advances that people uh, uh, have been uh, talking about, I'm not really sure it's um, a main effort. It's more that some forces were rotated out of the line, a new additional uh, brigade, uh, was to be rested for sure because they've been fighting for quite some, for a month now, and uh, one way to preserve forces, one way to preserve forces, is to to have, uh, to have of course, uh, the ability to to rotate them out and to to guarantee that you can keep fighting. Uh, that you can keep fighting, uh, uh, and that these forces can uh, be reconstituted and thrown back into the fight. You'll need to rest them, refit, and then, uh, and then bring them uh, back to 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 the line. I think that's important. I'm not convinced. I'm sorry. But I'm not convinced that this constitute constitutes uh, a main effort yet. Okay, I think uh, we'll need to see the next phase, which is uh, the exploitation of these uh, of these uh, breakthrough not breakthroughs these these victories by Ukraine. I don't know if there's any questions about this. Anyone got any questions? I'm afraid not, you know. No, no, I'm very boring. Um, so it, it's nothing. It's nothing to do with boring. <laughs> and the thing is, is that when you have someone who gives you a lecture and you get all the information, often there is no information. <laughs> well, I would just go everything, right? <laughs> I had somebody. I had somebody said they wanted to ask a question. I'm trying please. to bring you up. Yeah, please, please do. Uh, or uh, this turns into a monologue. Uh, I like some discussion. Um, but uh, the other point is what the Russians have been doing in northern Lugansk. 
So Northern Luhansk, what they have been doing? They've been fighting their way through the Kremina uh, forest. They've succeeded some advances. They've succeeded in some advances. I get the point. I get the point. And the point being that um, probably uh, they want to uh, relieve pressure in Bakhmut because Bakhmut is looking really, really bad for Russia. And I'm pretty sure, and one of the things I'm sure is nobody in Moscow wants to be the guy that loses Bakhmut because Vladimir Putin won't take that uh, easily. But they've they've done uh, they've crossed uh, one of the rivers. They've uh, made some advances toward Torske, um, and they've been pressing this area. I think honestly, this most of this is to relieve pressure uh, around Bakhmut. But um, I'm not really sure if it's a wise move. Let them com- continue doing this. I don't think it's a wise move. Excuse me, it's a wise move to um, stage an operation uh, so further north uh, to to try and draw out uh, Ukrainian reserves, committing the reserves you have in this region, because reserves is one of the issues that uh, the Ukrainians have, the Russians have, and the Ukrainians have. I see. Finally, we have some questions. M. Good to have you, man. Assalamu alaikum, brother. How are you doing? Good to have you, Nuno, as always. Uh, alaikum salam. Everything is good. That's exactly what I wanted to ask about. Uh, what are the Russians trying to do uh, along that axis, in your opinion? I mean, they're throwing everything they have at the Ukrainians, and they did achieve a measure of progress. But Success? E- e- I mean, yeah, but, but they're, they're, I, I can't figure out the strategic game it's it's like they need to get a success just for the score a success for the sake of success or there is a bigger move afterwards because if they're still going for the Lohansk uh, and Donetsk uh, oblasts borders <laughs> right a year later yeah then what is this I mean it, it's madness in a way and despite the fact that they have you know achieved a measure of progress but w- what is the strategic significance of all this in your opinion I think I think this the the issue here is these these dudes are really going for uh, the 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 mythical now mythical Oskil River uh, to pressure the, the Ukrainian front uh, towards the Oskil River and set it, uh, get it in in basically create a a defensive position along the Oskil River. I don't think they'll be. They've been trying to do this since a year now, and well, it hasn't gone anywhere. And if you have a limited number of reserves, I I think it's Nick who has a hot mic. Nick, you have a hot mic, I think. Ah, yes, thank you, man. Uh, I I don't think it's a it's a very uh, how can I put it? I don't think it's a very uh, intelligent move. I think, in a sense, they're trying to draw out uh, Ukrainian reserves, and they're trying to relieve some pressure on the Bakhmut. And they're going for the Oskil River and going for uh, the borders of Lugansk and Donetsk. But I mean, 
that should be sufficiently known that it's not going to work because it hasn't worked before for a year. Go ahead. I mean, I thought about them trying to uh, draw Ukrainian reserves, but, but, but it's not happening. I mean, the Ukrainians are more or less dealing with that, uh, whatever you want to call it, attack or maneuver very wisely. I mean, there's a cost, and we understand that, you know, the Ukrainians themselves have accepted this cost, and they don't mind this cost, but it's painful. But, you know, it's not trying to paint a dark picture or a rosy picture here, just trying to be very balanced. But it's just beyond reason. I mean, it's not, I mean, it is strong, but it's not strong enough to to start diverting uh, Ukrainian reserves. Uh, It is strong, but it's not strong enough to uh, result in a breakthrough. It is strong, but it's also depleting their own reserves and depleting their own munition stocks. And they have suffered quite a few hits to their logistical nodes and lost, you know, quite some munitions over the last two, three weeks, specifically the last two weeks. So it's just, it's futile. I mean, it's just, yeah, everyone keeps saying that they are starting to show a measure of professionalism, that they learned from their mistakes, that their learning curve seems to be going up slightly. But I, I don't believe it's the case. And, and I, it, it's I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced either. I'm not. I'm just not. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, if you've learned, you're not going to stage an attack here in a, in a very, what is to an extent a stable front, right? Uh, you'll just keep your defensive positions. Ukraine isn't attacking. Uh, you're not going to seek to try to reach the Oscar River because you don't have enough forces in place to do it. And uh, you'll try to maneuver it in a way that you can uh, stay there, uh, many up your defenses. And there's... It's me looking at this, but I think that there's more relevant parts of of uh, regions of the theater where their reserves will be far better uh, employed or far more significant. That's my personal view on this, okay? Uh, but it is what it is. They're trying... I Sometimes I, I get this feeling that Russia is fighting several wars in one. And I have this feeling since the beginning. They're fighting... They're still fighting several wars in one. Okay, there's... Because this attack here, okay. Which says something about their command structure. Sorry sorry to interrupt, right? I mean, the the, the command itself is in disarray and there's nothing going up and down accurately or timely or in any strategic manner. It's just, you know. Yeah, uh, you have some reserves, you attack there. It's like a low-grade butcher who's basically collecting all the leftover meat and trying to mince it and come up with, you know, 80-20 mix that can be used for meatballs or meat skewers, but it's not happening. I mean, there is nothing coming out of that machine except more death for them. And they're, they're, they're inflicting just damage wherever they go. I mean, the, the ecology itself, the cities, the towns, the villages, the infrastructure. And yes, there's also a price paid in blood in Ukraine soldiers, but it, it just... It's, it's sheer madness. I mean, there's nothing military about it. There's nothing strategic about it. It's just, it, it's like a shit show that needs to keep going because the orders from above say, say just keep going. 
I think I think to an, to an extent that that's a good point. There's no one in Moscow saying, "Okay, let's look at the theater and let's uh, okay, we have these difficulties here, and we're going to use our reserves here, there, X, Y, Z." This is the sense I get from the Russians. This is several wars in one, right? There's no unity of command. There's no overall strategic plan, which should be. Or this is about some guys selling the idea to the higher-ups. I'm, I'm not convinced. Even if they, the Ukrainians withdraw behind the, the Oskil River. It's a... Okay, the Ukrainians withdraw behind the Oskil River, then what? After um, you getting yourself thrown into a kill box behind the river, then what? You got to cross the river? Yeah, they then need to pick up all those pontoon and those other water crossing assets that they're running out of, uh, and all the other bits and pieces as well. Uh, you know, what you're gonna do about it, <laughs> right? What does what does that get you in terms of the theater? A moral victory, a tactical victory, yeah, sure. But your southern front is not in the best of shapes. And that's the decisive terrain. This here isn't the decisive terrain. Okay, you could say, yeah, Ukrainians are mapping forces there and I, we want to release some pressure out of spot top, so we want better defensive positions. But I mean, this front has been stuck here for quite some time. And if you don't have the good defensive positions by now, I'm not really sure what what do you have. M, please follow on on this. I mean, it's the final thought uh, on this uh, axis specifically. Do you think it's a trap and they have something up their sleeves that they're hoping the Ukrainians would send uh, reserves armed with Western equipment so that they may take them out or take enough of them out that they start another information operation based on a couple of photos since now recycling uh, the photos of, of that infamous... Uh, or this episode. Yeah, the, 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 it's, well, it was a Ricky element, even if it, or the entire 47 got slaughtered, let's, let's call it that way, which is not the case, of course, which is, is stupid <laughs> even to, to assume on, on the, hyperbole, you know, the scale of hyperbole, but let's, let's, let's humor them. So it, it, do you think it's possible that they're just trying to, you know, uh, lure Ukrainian reserves and, and hoping that they will, you know, meet a couple of Western pieces of kit and maybe get some of them damaged and start another information operation based on, on the photos of such a battle just to, I mean, they're the only strategic purpose of such an operation would be to set up a trap. Uh, uh, inflict casualties and, and uh, uh, equipment losses on the Ukrainians, and then start an information operation because be, you know because that that is their most effective weapon so far. It could be, I mean, because militarily, I don't see the point of this. Yeah, this 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 pu- uh, a big push in the north would have made sense during the winter operations to uh, establish a defensive along the river. That would have made sense. That would be perfectly sensible. And then you'd be ready for the counter Ukrainian counteroffensive behind the river, behind the Oskil River. That made sense. That's, that's something that you could defend. That's something you, 
it made sense. A big push here would release pressure from the northern uh, ground lines of communication in Svatov and Starobilsk. Fine, that's cool. I'm that works, but they have if you want to do that, you should have done that back in the winter, not now. Now you're running into what the Ukrainians have very heavily defended positions. And okay, yeah, they could be running uh, an op to, to get a few Bradleys and a few Martyrs or whatever out. But, I mean, there's always more where those came from. And uh, we, yeah, we'd be, say, take a few Martyrs and a few Leopards and a few CV-90s or whatever out. Uh, we'll get endless footage of the same thing for uh for the Russians, but from the Russians, but I mean, is that worth the the fight? Is that worth the risk? Is that the military sound decision? I don't think so. Uh, it really, really feels of sunk cost, though, doesn't it? Right? They put so much in, and uh, they don't want to give up. Yeah, but I mean, if you're uh, if, from a military point, if you're running a a decent defense here. There's the Ukrainians are not threatening the Saxes yet. If you have good prepared positions around here, why go on the offensive in a place where you commit reserves that is easy to defend? And where they're needed elsewhere, right? So where, that's why I'm saying they're needed elsewhere, exactly. That's why I mean it was like feels like sunk cost fallacy. So they put all this effort in and, you know, there's the, the psychological trauma of having to go, but I was wrong. Let, but no one's prepared to say they're wrong, so they just keep going. Hmm. Could be, could be, David. I mean, it's hard to assess, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still important. I think, I don't know who's next, but I think it's Alex, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then Tom, then ATV. Yes, please go ahead, Alex. Alex? Thank you. I have a question. So, uh, looks like Russians have multiple lines of defense, right? And I'm trying to figure out, so there are mines, uh, like where are the mines and uh, how many people do you think they have? Uh, well, first, how many lines and then how many people in each line? Because uh, there was information at some point that uh, crossing minefields is difficult, but Probably mines are not all across the, like, uh, all across the three lines or whatever lines they have. And second, uh, if they are short of people, where would they concentrate? They probably have somebody in the second line. But um, uh, so what's your take? What do you think how they organize these lines? And where are the mines? Like, what is the difficult part? Because I also read that the Staromayors gives access to, uh, I don't remember next name, but um, it's basically the... Staromlinivka, Staromlinivka. Yes, and uh, this is going to be probably beginning of second line of their defense. So how yes, are these lines Can you... They have basically a few lines of defense, but... Uh... The main line of this, the now called Sirovikin line, it runs south of Staroblinivka 
which is south of Staromayorsk. Uh, Staromlinivka is a bigger city. Uh, they probably have uh, some... This Staromayorsk Volodin axis is important because it's, uh, it commands a line. Uh, it commands the TO-518 uh, uh, road. And the terrain uh, just south of it, it's uh, basically ground that can be covered. I think the, the mines, the Russians have, have mined significantly. So some same with the Ukrainians. But Russians have mined these, these lines significantly. But the, one of the, the important parts of Staromayorsk is you're setting up the, the assault, let's put it this way, on the Surovakin line, which is the main line of defense that you need to breach. And once that's done, this, this becomes a different war uh, because, yes, they still have other lines of defense further in depth, especially in key nodes, but the main fortification line runs here south of Staroblinivka, uh, and this is where you need to, to basically break through to to go uh, to go south, and if you control this, you control this road south. The TO uh, five eighteen also runs um, parallel parallel to it. Also runs the Macriel River, uh, which allows you if you control, let's say the road, uh, you can uh, basically run operations. You can use the river as an optical. It's hard to counterattack through the river, so there's there's a few, but you need to break the defenses here, Alex. Yeah, I mean this is uh, they've reached. We are now at the phase where Ukraine is reaching the main line of defense. Same with Robotny. Uh, after this line of defense, there's still other lines of defense, but after this, things become much more difficult for Russia. But an important thing here, an important um, piece of, of information is we're talking, um, when we're talking uh, distances, for instance, when we're talking distances, uh, we should be aware of the distance we're talking about. Because we're talking, yes, it's still up north, but this is... And I'll give you a sense of what I'm saying. Uh, you have here a city. Uh, okay, let's go to, here it is, Staromayorsk. Staromayorsk, this city is just six kilometers, seven kilometers, 6.5 kilometers from Staromlinivka. Okay? So that's what we're talking about, right? It's not a hundred kilometers, not fifty kilometers. It's seven kilometers. Okay, and same goes, uh, for instance, for uh, Robotony. When we have here Robotony, uh, Robotony is. Let me just pull up a map here to give you an exact number. Robotony is basically. 20 kilometers, 25, 25, let me just measure this, easier like this, 
it's 25 kilometers from Tokmak, 20 kilometers from Tokmak. So it's not a huge distance, right? And Tokmak is one of the critical uh, points here. But there's still significant fortifications, and now Ukrainian forces are at the main line of the main defensive line that Russia set up in the region. Okay, that's important to understand, but it's also important to understand the distances we're talking about, okay? This is something that sometimes is not addressed. Uh, we're talking this like we're talking a 100 kilometer distance, but we're not, okay? And six, five, seven kilometers makes, especially if you're running a retrograde operation, is not uh, ideal, okay? So this is uh, important for everyone to understand. I think, I hope that answers the question. And Tom, please go. Yeah, thanks for joining us this evening, uh, Nuno. It's always interesting to listen to you. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've got a couple of questions. Tom, can you hear uh, me? Yeah, I can. Uh, yes, he can hear you, uh, Nuno. He's asking a question. Oh, uh, Tom, do you want to try recycling? Yeah, I'll bring you be. back up immediately. Mm, I can hear Tom for some reason. Yeah, uh, Tom's uh, going to recycle. We'll, uh, I'll bring him okay. up immediately. ATV, please go ahead. I love humility, never boring. Um, my my primary question was actually going back to the Atacams or Atacams, but I don't want to derail the military conversation, so I'm happy to circle back if, if that makes more sense. Um, no, no, do, please go. go we ahead. have a minute before Tom comes back up, yeah. Go, yeah, this could, this, this could take a little bit, slightly longer than a minute, but I... I I usually pride myself on being go brief. Ahead, go ahead, All right, please. so um, <laughs> it's really good to hear your thoughts. The, your basic thesis, I, I, I kind of would respectfully challenge it if I understood it. Um, your basic thesis is the, there's multiple reasons, but the primary reason for the resistance from the U.S. is coming from the DD and concerns about U.S. capabilities, stockpiles, uh, you know, some, similar similar sort of views. Is that is that a reasonable like brief summation? Yes, it's. Um, I think it, there's three things, three issues here. Stocks, one, two, uh, global posture by the U.S. and uh, not uh, um, in peril, uh, putting in danger eventual necessities of the U.S. Uh, military. And the other is escalation. I think these are the three things that DOD analysts are saying that uh, uh, doesn't enable the DOD to supply attackers. But please go ahead, ATV. Carry on. Okay, sorry. Well, I, I'm, the connection is poor for me. What was the first one? I heard talks. What was the, what was the first reason? Uh, you no, said you... Uh, stocks. 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 Oh, stocks. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Stocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess in my, in my neophyte way, stocks and, 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 um, and uh, force posture are kind of very, very similar, but maybe, maybe they're not. I, the, the reason the reason I would respectfully challenge that, uh, and, and I emphasize respectfully, is it doesn't jibe on the one hand with how the U.S. and other countries apparently approached 155 ammunition and, and how hard they ran that down and are now playing catch up. And on the other hand, it doesn't jibe with, let's say, something like the F-16s, where, where it seems that the U.S. is still not approving other countries to train the Ukrainians, other countries to give away the F-16s. And you, and you can go down the list, like 
of, of like numbers of Bradleys, numbers of Abrams, right? Like it's not like we can talk about things that they actually did deliver, but, but why in the quantities and the way that they have. So uh, it, it belies to me, and this is what I worry about, and maybe this is just paranoia, but it belies to me that the canary in the coal mine here isn't about stocks and force posture, right? It is, a, it is about escalation. It is also quite possibly the concern that maybe they view this is the kit the Ukrainians can really use to smash the shit out of those orcs. And, and therefore, we don't want to give them that capability in full. Right? And uh, I know that's a bit of a Russian talking point. But... No, no. What the, one of the reasons, you're not entirely incorrect in that. Uh, one of the reasons is the escalation mantra, from what I've heard, is that uh, if we give Ukraine these capabilities, right? Uh, they'll be able to uh, achieve uh, significant um, success, and we may be looking at uh, desperate Kremlin doing desperate things. I don't know if I if I make myself clear. If you understand what I'm saying, if you understand the the vibe of what I'm saying, right? Uh, uh, catastrophic success. Let's put it that way. Okay. But please. Yeah, I, so I understand how you've defined escalation now. Yeah. I mean, but, but then that augurs, right. That, that, that augurs down that ugly path of we'll, we'll stand, we'll, we'll be with you for as long as it takes, but not to win. Right. <laughs> and that's, yeah, because that's if you want to win, if you want, if you want to win, if you want to win, I'm, I'm not saying, okay, stocks are, are an issue. Of course they're an issue uh, because there's just a few thousand of these weapons, but I'm not saying give them a thousand, give them, 200, 300 weapons, right? Uh, 300 pieces of uh, 300 attackers, okay, which will you know, you'll still retain significant numbers of uh, it will create an impact, especially especially in the, this is my personal view, the biggest biggest impact is the ability to strike complex targets with multi-vector attacks, right? You can use drones, you can use attackums, and if you use storm shadows to overwhelm any Russian air defense in theater, especially Sevastopol, Saki, other air bases, that kind of stuff, right? So that will enable uh, a number of operations that that will create massive, massive, massive problems for the Russian military. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why we want them, and, and that, and the scary part is maybe that's why they're not sending them. Um, and and yet, I mean, these people are a cancer that's metastasized, right? It's metastasized by trying to freeze millions in Europe, trying to starve maybe a billion with the grain in terms of like price rises and insecurity. You know, like freezing, like shutting down the Black Sea. It's just metastasizing. Look at what's happening in Niger today. Right. Like if, if, if we if you don't cut the cancer out, it will keep growing. And yet and yet the U.S. posture seems to be, no, we shouldn't do that. We should sort of just like slowly, slowly feed the cancer or just let it hang out for a bit. And, and that's, and, that's the fear. And what what really strikes at me is that it's coming from the Department of Defense. More than anything else. In it's it's a, a certain statement of a, a certain mindset that is not very. Um, when some analysts or some experts in the in the department inform their their principles 
uh, that they shouldn't do X, Y, Z, they should oppose this because X, Y, Z. The mindset behind this is something that that mindset um, scares me a bit. Because how does that mindset fare in a war with, with China? Right? How does it fare with, in a bigger conflict? where the US is directly involved have have we as have we lost the ability we the collective west have but in this case has the US department of defense lost its uh drive to win a war right i think it's a fair question the drive to win a war and you give the example of the black sea atv and it's a good example. Escalation is coming in the Black Sea. When some ship gets sunk in Romanian territorial waters. When some caliber or some shahids go astray and hit Romania. Where some mines float up the Danube and hit some ships in the Danube. That's coming. And I, 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 oh, sorry, Nuno, I was going to add in, it doesn't even take into account the messaging to China, right? When you're, when you're going, mm, we've only got, we've, they've managed to get 60, 70 uh, main battle tanks into a country that is desperately at war, desperately needs them, and this is what they managed to do. What does that messaging, uh, uh, what's China going with that messaging? Yes, and the Chinese, we, we're lucky, we're lucky. Actually, the, the, the collective West is lucky that the Chinese weren't ready and that the Chinese economy is in a bad place, right? Because if the, the Chinese economy wasn't in a bad place and if the Chinese were ready, we'd be facing some very serious problems, right? So this is something, and this messaging goes along with what's happening in Niger today, which is a good example, there's a pro-Russian coup going on. The the summit between uh, some African leaders and and uh, Russia in Saint Petersburg, where uh, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin was too, that cancer is growing. Um, and this is. And this is a significant problem, right? And that's something we need to, uh, and something we need to to address. Something we need to to be to take into account, right? And and I'm not seeing that. I think uh, M, please go ahead, and then Tom, and, and then Tom. If make sure you put your hand up, Tom. Uh, yeah, just to, I mean, I understand why the Department of Defense is being very careful. And sometimes their messaging and their recommendations and their uh, reports paint a different picture. And I know that everyone wants to avoid escalation. And it can be seen as not sending the wrong messages to China, but actually telling China that no one is interested in war. And the Russians have caused enough problems that it is. And we're showing a lot of restraint, whereas they are not. And we're trying to stop this because it's actually destabilizing Europe and destabilizing the global economy. And your economic situation is bad as it is right now. And you need the global economy to, you know, hit a reset 
again soon to prevent your situation from further deteriorating right it, it can be pitched in any possible in, in several ways and you know the wise people on on both sides should just you know smarten up a little bit and realize that the core problem is that not that there is a future war because there was a previous pivot and you will be next. I mean, China can still be defanged if they want to become a better player or a better partner in the international community. If they want to go down the same path as Russia, they know the, 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 the end result. Yeah, maybe they trust their capabilities a little bit more. Maybe they think that they have more leverage around the world. Maybe they think that they are in a better place when it comes to training or equipment or whatever. But they know that, you know, if, if, if the hammer is going to fall, that they will be significantly affected, right? So, and, and, and then another point about the Chinese is uh, it's not a given that China does not enter a process of internal instability. Everyone, pl- I usually say this, but and I'm not joking even, everyone plans for the rise of China. Is anyone planning for its collapse? I'm just asking because, well, what happens if the Chinese dream doesn't work out? And all those billions of people decide they're done with the, CC, with the, the Chinese Communist Party. Because the system failed them in the end, what happens? And we saw, and we saw that was Foxconn that almost got out of control, and the government had to backtrack on its on its draconian, you know, uh, restrictions because they realized that they could lose control in a minute or a moment. Yeah, and there's no there's no enough uh, people armed police or PLA. It's going to hold off a billion people, right? So. Yeah, everyone plans for China's rise. Does anyone plan for its collapse? And just to add a remark to ATV's question, you know, the, specifically about Atacams or F-16s or any other platforms, the, the slow response here and the debates and the arguments and the back and forth actually disproves this whole talking point, the Russian talking point about this whole war is being funded and being enabled by the West because the military industrial complex wants to sell more weapons. Well, that's not the case because if they want to sell more weapons <laughs> and they have enough lobbies to pressure you know, policymakers to do so, frankly, they're failing at it. And no one wants to give more weapons because people are worried or you know, decision makers are worried about escalation and they know that it's not to be taken lightly and they know that the Russians could just go crazy Ivan, you know, on all of us uh, at some point if they are stupid enough and they are actually being reasonable and responsible and approaching this delicate issue with, 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 with uh, uh, by being careful, right? So that, I think this specific point, the Atacams, specifically the Atacams, right? Because if you're arguing that the military-industrial complex is only interested in making profit, and therefore it's using its lobbies to pressure policymakers to provide arms to Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? They're failing then, miserably. Then, well, you know, what's another type of missile anyway with a guarantee that Ukraine is not going to use it uh, against Russian territory? Yeah, right? It's just, it's, it's ridiculous at this point. Yes, and, and it's in, in 
and that but that mindset worries me because it's not a mindset let's let's win this because the way out of this is to win it and be done with it that's the way to go i mean we can uh we can do uh, a number of backflips and all that but in the end uh uh in the end that's where we are right uh we need to to address that i mean it's important it, uh, for us to uh, to to know that and it's important to say okay it's our objective is to win to enable ukraine to win or eventually this thing gets out of hand and we'll have to fight it if you want to stop escalation make ukraine win allow ukraine to win and if you're uh, still believing this is being driven by the military industrial complex well i have a bridge to sell you it's kind of damaged but i have a bridge to sell you tom please go ahead yeah can you hear me now yeah perfectly perfectly yeah. tom now. okay <laughs> um okay so i, I was going to ask a bit about the defensive lines and and then uh em's earlier question about the the offensive in the east also got me thinking um, so the first part of my question is, I've heard it reported that the Russians are kind of fighting forward of the, was it the Surovikin line? So they're actually been fighting along defensively from as much as they've taken, rather than falling back to their first defensive line. And every time the Ukrainians sort of probe, the Russians immediately send in reserves. And so they're sort of throwing everything into the front. And that means they might not have as many reserves left when they actually come to the defensive lines? Is that kind of correct, as far as you know? I think uh, the Ukrainians have been very systematic in this, uh, as I've said in other, in other emissions, this one of the, the systematic elements that Ukraine... They, I think, David, you have a hot mic there. Um, uh, one of the, the, the elements that uh, uh, Ukraine has been systematic about, Tom, is the fact that they've been all of this time drawing out uh, uh, reserves by um, by Russia, right? And drawing out reserves um, is a key element of any strategy to win this because they know uh, Russian reserves are limited and the ability to regenerate uh, the forces are is very limited. So the ability to rotate forces is very limited. Actually, General Popov of the 58 Combined Arms Army said exactly that. We don't have the ability to regenerate forces. Uh, our The forces we have uh, there have been fighting there for an age. Uh, so uh, the issue is um, we have uh, basically who we have an issue where Ukraine has been systematic. Can, how can I put it? Can, uh, will a moment come where I believe that uh, a breakthrough will occur because uh, even the defensive lines and the reserves are not there? Yes. Yes. The level of forces, the level of forces, and the geography of the theater 
uh, has me thinking about that from early on. Some of you who've listened in on this uh, show for quite some time now, uh, you've heard me talk about it. The geography doesn't fit the level of forces. And frankly, when the combined arms army commander in the south says, goes to Moscow to try and say, I don't want to, basically what the guy said is, I don't want to own this shit show because we don't have enough artillery. And this is an army centered around artillery. We don't have enough counter battery, an army centered around artillery. And we don't have enough people because we can't rotate people. That means reserves are very, very limited. So in that sense, it's a, it's a clear display of there's a moment here that it will give. And when it gives, it's going to go from an attrition phase to a, a more movement and uh, operations phase, a more uh, maneuver phase, let's put it this way. Tom, please go ahead. Yeah, so so that kind of leads to the second part of my question. So if a lot of the Ukrainian shaping has basically been like recon and probing in order to get the Russians to counterattack, commit reserves and, you know, open fire with their artillery so Ukrainian counterbattery can destroy them. So they're sort of systematically trying to attrit the Russians and attrit their reserves so that when they do get a breakthrough later on, the Russians haven't got the reserves to try and stop it and they can actually exploit that breakthrough. But you see, the Russians, they, they must be able to at least see that this is what the Ukrainians are doing. And so it seems bizarre that the Russians haven't, you know, withdrawn to the Syrovikin lines, which are supposedly much more heavily defended than their most forward lines. And, and it was why when Ems asked his question, why are they doing this counterattack in the East? What do they hope to achieve? It, it doesn't make any sense. I was thinking to myself, do, do you think that maybe the Russians just deep down, perhaps at the, the higher sort of general staff kind of level, just don't really believe that they can lose? I'm just thinking about the, you know, the history of Russia in World War II, losing massive amounts of territory and taking millions of casualties and then eventually winning. Do, do they just think deep down that this losing is unimaginable to them and, and so they're not fighting like someone that actually thinks oh, shit, I could lose. I need to be sensible and defensive. D does that make sense? That makes sense. In this, That makes sense in this regard. Uh, I think the command in Moscow is more concerned with its political survival and uh, keeping stability for them in the system they control than winning the war. And they don't take believe their own Kool-Aid that they can outlast the West, they can uh, outlast Ukraine, and they will eventually win. And they still haven't grasped that they cannot outlast Ukraine, they cannot outlast the West, and that they can really uh, suffer uh, uh, a defeat on uh, in uh, in the battlefield. And the issue is they are trying to basically keep up a system at all costs. The power, ver 
I don't like to very much the term power vertical, but yes, uh, the system that op- that rules Russia, they're trying to keep it up no matter the cost. And the issue is when you have, uh, if I'm if I'm sitting in Moscow in the general staff and I have the commander of the 58 Combined Arms Army come over to me and say, listen, General, we're going to lose this if because of this X, Y, Z reason. I'm goddamn concerned. What I'm going to do is say, okay, man, what do you need from us so you stabilize the situation and we freeze the conflict? Right? That's the sensible move. Correct? Uh, it's the, it's not, you don't need to be a military genius to say that. I wouldn't sack the guy. I'll sit with the guy and say, listen, what do you need? Right? Uh, the same with Teplinski, for instance. When the guy says, listen, we're in a dire situation in Bakhmut and we're where uh, what you say, what you need to stabilize the situation and to make sure we don't lose it. And they sack these guys for basically going there and, and doing their jobs, right? But they're the herald, they're the bringer, the, the herald of bad news. And Moscow doesn't think, M- Moscow still believes it can outlast the West. Eventually, the West will fold because they'll run so much, um, because Africans and Latin Americans will uh, pressure the West because of the Black Sea. And this is not going to happen this way, right? And to an extent, they've drank their own Kool-Aid, Tom. That's my that's my view. They recycled, and they drank their own. They're high on their supply, as I was saying one of these days. They're high on their supply. They're trying to keep their power vertical intact, in the system that made them wealthy and made them influent. They're trying to keep it at all costs, and I think that's the main concern they have, instead of the war. You just need to look at what happened. And what happened that sacked and disappeared to go telling the truth to Moscow. And what happens to a guy who stages a mutiny, which basically tried to stage a coup to an extent, and then roams free around Moscow because the guy who staged the coup has a has a power base of his own. And and there uh, influence and operations in Africa are dependent on that guy, and he knows it. So he stages a, basically a mutiny, a coup, whatever you want to call it, and he still roams free in Moscow to an extent, but he still does because his power base is intact. Right? How can this work? I don't think this can work. I hope that answers the question, Tom. Yeah, it certainly does it. It seems that one of the factors that Russia has got that really goes against it is their sort of own belief in their own invincibility. I think they just don't think that they can lose. And I think, ironically, that's going to make them more likely to lose. I think I think so. And I think that uh, that's, uh, that time, the time approaches is fast approaching. And I really hope that the the U.S. administration frees up the necessary assets to give it a, a nudge down 
to open the window and nudge them <laughs> out of the window. Because that's what we need we need to do with the Putin regime. We need to nudge it out of the window. From the one hundredth floor of the skyscraper. They need to fall flat on their faces and then we'll they'll it's up to them to pick up the pieces of their own. And uh, after that we'll see what happens. Because instability in Russia is a given. There's no way that they won't be in a massively unstable position for the coming future. Vladimir Putin uh, staged this and then uh, basically lost uh, the Russian... In the worst case scenario, he lost the Russian state. It's the last president of the Russian Federation. And I'm I'm not even joking. In the worst case scenario, Vladimir Putin will go down in history as the last president of the Russian Federation. In the best case scenario, he'll go down in history as the guy who invaded Ukraine, did all this, and then was thrown out of power by his own clique, and eventually uh, Russia stumbles along. That's my view on this, because instability in Russia is a given. Escalation is happening in the Black Sea. It will grow uh, more complex. And uh, it's uh, unavoidable to an extent. David, go ahead, man. No, I was going to say, yes, it's inevitable, isn't it? The complexities, because this is what they do. They make things more complex. But I do have some questions from people who aren't up as speakers, Nuno. So uh, Please the, uh, go ahead and uh, yeah. we'll cycle to them and then we'll, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Go ahead. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so the first question is... Uh, is there any prospect for an imminent accelerated process for testing the prisms, um, uh, which would reduce the uh, the problems with the attacams? Nope. No. I, I, I didn't think so either. Not, uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, but I don't think so either. Yeah, I mean, we're not hearing that there's any rush to, to do anything with Atacam, so why would they be rushing to increase the process or quicken the, the speed of the process of do, finishing prisms and, and doing all of that sort of testing, right? Exactly. exactly. And the second question uh, is um, a more along the lines of uh, from someone else, um, and they've asked, um, surely the Oskil River... Um, that reduces the need for the number of Russian troops that the, are the other side of it, which should free them up uh, uh, to go elsewhere. True. That's true. You just need to reach the river and set up defensive positions along it. Uh, they haven't been able to do it since uh, a year and a half. So, yes, since a year, basically. So, yes. It it would, it would make sense from a military standpoint, if you are able to push Ukraine forces to the other bank of the Oskil River, it's a formidable obstacle uh, that you can defend with left forces, and will free up reserves to go elsewhere. The problem is, you're throwing reserves to uh, capture an objective, uh, where your reserves are require are required to be elsewhere. 
even if they see the Oscar River and lose Zaporizhia Oblast, well, there you go. I wouldn't say it's a victory, but yes, sure, the river makes sense. But it had made sense as a primary objective of of the the winter offensive. I actually, uh, without disclosing anything, I briefed a private client uh, who asked me a briefing on this, and I told him exactly that uh, early on in February that the Oskol River was a key objective of the Russian Federation. I was that wrong. I was that wrong because they they didn't manage to reach it. And that's their problem, isn't it? Because the the whole problem is they don't have enough troops to hold the area they're trying to, and therefore they're, what they're trying to do is they're, they're borrowing off Peter to pay Paul all the time, and to do some of these things, you need troops to do it. And, I mean, part of what we were talking about a little bit earlier, for me, it smacks as if, uh, you know, when you see these, um, when you watch a film and someone says, I need, um, need 1,000 people to do something, they go, no. You can't have 1,000, you can have 200, right? Uh, uh, but in Hollywood, it always ex- succeeds. But I get the feeling that someone said, to achieve this task, I need X thousands of troops, and someone's just gone, but you can have half, right? But that doesn't that doesn't make for a success, does it? Because if you need nope. 10,000 and you provide 5,000, all you're doing is providing 5,000 people who are easily get dead. Killed. Get killed. Yeah, you're providing five thousand bodies. Yeah. You're throwing warm bodies at a problem, basically, until until you run out. That's what you're doing. That's exactly what you're doing. I mean, the Russians have been doing this for quite a bit. They've been throwing warm bodies, and and I always see this comparison, and and, and it's very present in the mind of the Russian populace in the Russian military to an extent, because any military reflects the Russian uh, its populace which is uh, the Great Patriotic War. We took millions of casualties, but we won. Cool. How many people did you mobilize for uh, the Great Patriotic War? Quite a, I think the number was quite a bit, right? It's nothing remotely, vaguely comparable. There were more people fighting in Stalingrad at the point than the, in this whole in that uh, Russia then Russia has in this whole theater, and, so and that goes to the other problem, is it? They just don't have enough troops, and I can't they help but wonder. One of the things we said, yo, know, because that that they've you said they've drunk their own Kool Aid. We, we had so many analysts telling us. I mean, there's some people were saying it's not true, but so many were going. But they've got a million, a million soldiers, right? But they they didn't had three hundred thousand. I can't help but think that they just thought that they did. They still think that it's the old times, and they have a million, and this is really easy providing everything. But they just don't have those troop numbers, and what Ukraine's got double that amount now, haven't they? No, but but the the thing is, David. The thing is, we have a million troops. Cool. They may, they they have a million troops. That's not the problem. The problem is, uh, you cannot exactly uh, empty the Russian uh, the Russian Federation of troops. It's not exactly the most stable of places, right? And can you sustain a million troops in combat in 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 Ukraine, right? You can have a a, a million troops, but you cannot sustain them in combat. In Russia, in Ukraine, can they? 
They can. I mean, no. that's 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 the, that's the deal. You can have as many troops as you like, but you still need to sustain them in combat, and you cannot empty the Russian Federation. Because if you empty the Russian Federation, there's stakeholders in the Russian Federation will think, well, perhaps this Russian Federation business is over, is overdue, right? It's a very large, very complex, very geographically, uh, it's the world's largest country. So you basically, I, it's, you need troops there. There's no way around it. And I was going to say, and the, the people involved have not taken a Henry V attitude to logistics and how to go and fight fight the war. They've just done a, a they, yeah, let's just go over there, <laughs> a charge. I think that was the, the instructions, right? I mean, the whole planning is it. We've talked extensively about this, but the, the whole thing from the beginning makes no sense. Uh you know the, the those all those thunder runs into Kiev and all that. None of that makes sense. The Russians didn't fight as they themselves thought they would fight, and that um, made them lose the war. They've lost the war in Hostomel. Basically, they've lost the war uh, yep. in Kharkiv. They've lost the war in Kherson. But. We are still here, and Ukraine still needs to get them out of Ukraine. And that's my point with the Atakum's business: is, is let's give it the nudge. We've we've taken them to the hundredth floor. We've smacked them in the head. They're half asleep. Now let's open the window and throw them out. Get some more. Get some more kit in there. Get some additional assets in there. Because uh, this thing, the more desperate they get, the more escalation is likely, right? So that's something we need to consider. And better to to drive it home now than to, to have it uh, going on uh, for another year or another two years, right? Yeah, very much so in terms of damage to the country, damage to the world. To the, uh, damage uh, to the world. Uh, mm. Damage to the world, David. Uh, damage to the overall European security architecture. Yeah, it damaged the economies. The list goes on, which is why we know that the, the decisions being made aren't financial. They're not going, but this costs too much because the cost, they they can work out what those costs are because they're considerable. So the decisions are, are entirely different. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. No. Okay. Thank you so much, David. I think we'll wrap it up today. Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you wonderful. So much, everyone. Thank you, David, for, for your horses. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and... and... And thank you very much, Nuno. Listen, so the thing is to remember is whilst we didn't ask any questions for uh, for 60 minutes, we then spent 60 minutes asking questions. So, the, the, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. Look, it was absolutely wonderful. I, rarely, I just, uh, well, I, 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 often I just go, no, I need to really think about what you're saying before I can even really uh, want to ask a question. Think about, think first which is not what the Russians did. It's been a pleasure, as always, Nuno. Uh, thank you so much, uh, David. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you. We'll be back here next week and see what happens. Thank you. Bye-bye-bye. Oh, I can't wait. Well, thank you very much, Nuno, and uh, everyone else. If you give him a hand, that's, it was, uh, that was very, very good. <laughs>